My name is Jeremy Corbell. I seek to weaponize your curiosity, and if you're ready to suspend your own prejudice, welcome to the world of extraordinary beliefs. Are we all the product of an alien video game? The extraterrestrial technology is real, it's possible. We have material that has been pulled out of a man's leg that should not exist. This sample could not have been made on Earth because the isotopic ratios. I know there are alien craft here from another planet, but I was inside one. Who are we? And where are we actually sitting within the architecture of our universe? Are we alone? Or is the answer simply stranger than we can think and think? We're going to cancel the uh, training exercise. Uh, we have real-world passing. All of our heads start looking outside because now we know that it's around us. Cast Eagle, two ordnance on board. I laughed and actually said, I have a Catam 9 with a sledgehammer. You can get it off the airplane. Other than that, it ain't leaving. And as we're looking at the whitewater is when we see the white Tic Tac. It had incredible capabilities as far as aviation goes. There's no wings, no rotors, no lifting surfaces, no control surfaces. It doesn't have inertia, it doesn't slow down. It just stops instantly and goes the other direction. It was watching us as we were watching it. They actively tried to jam the radar. The act of jamming of a radar is a hostile action. This thing disappeared in a, in a second. It's just gone. It just disappeared. And what was it? To this day, we don't know. I'm sure you're not going to believe this. That thing is in your cap again. That's the voice of Commander David Fravor, a badass Top Gun fighter pilot, and in 2004, the commanding officer of VFA-41, the Black Aces. On November 14th of that year began a typical Sunday for Commander Fravor. About 100 miles southwest off the coast of San Diego, it was 70 degrees and clear skies, and an average wind speed of three miles per hour. But this wasn't a typical day, not at all. The Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was preparing for deployment to the Arabian Sea with routine pre-deployment workups. Starting on November 10th, the USS Princeton had been detecting multiple AAVs, anomalous aerial vehicles, UFOs, operating in and around the vicinity of the strike group. The vehicles of unknown origin and function were tracked on radar, with returns descending from far above the radar's scan volume somewhere higher than 80,000 feet. The targets would drop from above 80,000 feet to hover roughly 50 feet above the water in a matter of seconds, an impossibly fast rate of descent, and what I've been told, at ICBM trajectories. On the 14th, Commander Fravor launched with his WSO, Weapons and Sensors Officer, into the clear blue sky. Their call sign was Fast Eagle 01, his wingman and WSO launched after in Fast Eagle 02. Commander Fravor was flying an FA-18F Super Hornet when he received vectors to an unknown contact. A controller on the USS Princeton with the call sign Poison asked what ordinance do you have on board? This was an odd request due to the fact Commander Fravor was not in an active combat area, a hot zone. He replied that he had no live ordinance. This was real-world tasking. He then proceeded to the location of the contact 
located it visually, and went after it. The anomalous aerial vehicle outmaneuvered anything imaginable by modern, advanced human technology. The craft of undetermined origin and unknown operators displayed flight characteristics far beyond current propulsion technology known to man, or even understood within current physics. This event has become one of the best documented UFO close encounter cases in history. Commander David Fraber is now willing to talk, and his testimony is what you're about to hear. Now I've been working on this case for a long time, years before it became the tip of the spear about government confirmation or acknowledgement on UFOs. Before this case was publicly known, I was hunting for the truth and establishing dialogue with the key witnesses involved, most of which I have never spoken about publicly. Commander David Fraber is included in that. Over that time, we have developed a rapport and this interview is an important aspect of my efforts to find detailed clarity on this case, extinguishing the noise and raising the signal. Commander Fravor is the primary witness to this astonishing UFO event series. Over the years, I've come to understand and appreciate his integrity, professionalism, humor, and candor. We should listen to what Commander Fravor has to say as his testimony has become part of the fabric of our time. Commander Fraber is the real deal. And that's just something you're gonna to have to come to terms with. What's your name and what was your title and occupation in 2004? David Fraber and I was the commanding officer of Strike Fighter Squadron 41, deployed aboard USS Simmons. Being the commanding officer of the Black Aces back in 2004, you clearly have a lot of flight experience and you, you're commanding that squadron. I was the guy in charge of over 300 people, had 12 airplanes at the time. I had over uh, 3,600 flight hours, top gun grad, literally had every wall that you could have in a F-18. And at that time, you were flying F-A-18F Super Hornets, right? Yep. Newest ones in the fleet. Block 26, Advanced Crew Station, jets were literally brand new. We've been talking for a while now. The reason we're talking today, the mass media and global news have been abuzz about UFOs, and you were the pilot in 2004 in that event series that had the closest physical and eye-on contact with the anomalous aerial vehicle that you've dubbed the Tic Tac. Is that correct? It is correct. There were a number of people that were able to see what was going on, but you were the closest to the vehicle. Yeah, there was four of us that saw it. Everyone else was just a radar blip, which you can't tell if it's an airplane or what. You just know it's there because you're getting a return. But for the eyes on look, it actually physically watched it for over five minutes. There were four of us, and I was the closest. Well, me and my backseater. When you got the communication asking, what ordinance do you have on board? What were the exact words the controller used in asking that? Cat Eagle, two ordnance on board. I laughed and actually said, I have a Cat of nine with a sledgehammer. You can get it off the airplane. Other than that, it ain't leaving. <laughs> Cat of nine is a cap captive carry aim nine. It's a blue tube. Blue means inert. So it has no warhead. It has no rocket motor. It's basically just a mount, a tube that's the same size as the real missile. The secret is real, and everything behind it is fake. It's just a blue tube. 
can't even fire it. it. Doesn't even have a motor. You can put it on an airplane and take it off with a wrench or a sledgehammer. There's no rocket motor. There's no nothing. It's just, it's literally a shape that has a real seeker head on it. That's all it is. Did you actually say over radio you could get it off with a sledgehammer? I did. And the guy kind of laughed. He says, well, regardless, we're going to cancel the uh, training exercise. Uh, we have real world tasking. Do you and your wing, do you guys hear the same controller? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're up the same radio. We're up both. We have two, two radios, two UHF radios that we talk on. There's the number one radio we're talking to the controller and the number two radio we can talk to each other. We also have, a, we have an intercom system in the airplane that allows uh, its voice activated so we can talk to our backseaters without keying any mics. It was a, a male voice that was the controller from the Princeton you were speaking with? Yeah. I don't think we had any females that whole crews. Not on the ships, but as far as the OS, the operations specialists that do the air intercept control. There's that document on the TTSA website where there's the pilot record, and they have somebody that they call source in that. It represents the people that day that were flying. People think you are the one represented as the word source in that, but reading through it, I recognize that you're a different person in that document. But that person, the pilot actually of the other plane with you on that day, he said that it was a, a female controller coming through the radio. Do you think that's just a mistake? That's a mistake. It was a guy. The 13-page document is correct. The guy had a call sign named Poison. His name is it was not a female on, on the radio with you. That's correct. So this is interesting. You had training rounds on your plane. No live weaponry. Yeah, we don't, we don't train in the U.S. military with live weapons. Anytime you have live weapons, we have, we have things called fire breaks where we have to disable a bunch of stuff. And we can only do certain things because sometimes people forget they have live weapons. And if you put the switches in the wrong position, live weapons come off airplanes. And if you're pointing at your buddy and you accidentally launch one, you know, the weapon doesn't care. It's, it's, it's one of those lessons learned in blood because we've done that before and bad things have happened. Let's jump into the actual experience. So you go to this location, you get told over the radio, merge plot. So as they give us the vector, immediately we, you know, because we're, we're committed, which means we're going to this point, we're going to this target that they're tracking. So they start telling us bearing range and altitude. So just for example, as we're going out to the west, it would be... Yeah, fast 110, uh, 270, 60 miles, 10,000 feet. So that's a rock call, bearing range and altitude. Got so it. they call these down until we get to the point where we're not seeing anything on radar. They're obviously seeing something. And when the we get when our blip merges with their blip, which means we're in the same radar resolution cell, that's called merge plot. And once you get merge plot, all of our heads start looking outside because now we know that it's around us and we need to figure out where it's at because the radar can't help us anymore. People have heard your story, but let's just clarify one time. You arrived to the merge plot. Can you describe what you encountered? We start looking around. My wingman, that airplane is off my left side or to the south. As we're looking around, we look down and the initial thing that we see is white water. It's important to know because it's a clear day. There's no white caps. It's just a perfect day, and we see whitewater, which means usually there's something under the surface, like a seamount. And as we're looking at the whitewater is when we see the white tic-tac, and the back seater in the other airplane comes up and says, hey, Skipper, do you see? I'm like, dude, what is that? As we're watching the tic-tac move kind of north, south, east, west, like ping-pong goes, whoop, whoop, at random, it just moves at will. 
doesn't inertia, it doesn't slow down, it just stops instantly and goes the other direction. Which airplanes and helicopters don't do that. There's always a you know, if you're going fast in one direction, you slow down before you can reverse. You have to overcome that inertia before you can come back the other direction. You know, our estimate is about fifty feet above the water and it's moving around left, right, up, down, you know, forward, back. So it's not going up and down in altitude, it's just kinda of going forward, back, left, right. You once said to me a long time ago that it moved like a ping pong ball. You know, like a helicopter, if it's moving to the right, it doesn't instantly just go to the left, even an airplane. It basically has to slow down, stop, and go the other direction. Where if you throw a ping pong ball against the wall, the force is immediately transferred. It bounces back the other way, so it's moving like ping pong. You know, it would move, stop, go left, go right, go forward, stop, hang out. No pattern to it. You know, like it was, like it was kind of jumping around on the whitewater. Like, I don't know what it was doing. I don't know, have dairy not, but we'll save that. And at one point, you said multiple times the vehicle pointed its its end towards you. So as we went around, so when we saw it, we started a right-hand turn. So now think of a clock. So we started at 6 o'clock, the object's in the middle. So as we go to 9 o'clock, we're just watching this thing do the exact, you know, the ping-pong ball kind of bing, 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 bing. At 9 o'clock, I say, hey, I'm going to go check this thing out. I'm going to go down. I'm going to descend. The other airplane stays up high to provide cover and see, you know, get a kind of a God's eye view of what's going on. And we go around the circle. When I get to the 12 o'clock position, the object is actually pointed relative to the clock. It's, it's been pointed at the between 12 and 6, so the elongated axis of 12 and 6. When I get to the 12 o'clock position, as I start down, it turns real fast and just kind of pivots. So now it's parallel with me. And now it's mirroring me. So as I'm coming down from 12 to 3, it's going up from 6 to 9. I don't know if it knew we were there the whole time or what, but once I got to 12 o'clock and started coming down, it's almost like it acknowledged our presence and it started to mirror us, like it was watching us as we were watching it. So without any live ordinance on board, at any point did the consideration go through your mind that you might have to use your aircraft as a weapon? No, it wasn't, it wasn't hostile. I wasn't trying to kill it. I just wanted to get close to see what it was. Curiosity. Oh, very much. You've mentioned twice, and in interviews, like both with the Boston Herald and Nightline, you said the vehicle jammed the radar. The jamming of the radar is from the video. That's a different. That's a different flight. We we never picked it up on radar, and and I mean I could with with the systems that we have, I can see the radar to where I'm looking, but we never acquire a lock. We never get anything from the radar. Our entire five minutes plus this thing is visual. We're watching it. The act of jamming occurred on the flight where they picked up the video, the FLIR video. That's when he reported. That's correct. He picked up a return. He went attempted a lock. It immediately jammed the radar. He cast it over to a passive uh, targeting pod. The radar kind of goes stupid. If you look at the targeting pod video, it'll say ranging on the top right side. Says 999, which means it's not getting ranging. Normally, if, like if that was an airplane, the radar would be performing a ranging to tell you how far away it is. You have a range. So, what's the importance of that statement? What's the importance of the idea of active jamming compared to passive jamming? What does that mean for people to understand? Well, the one is active, is means they actively try to jam the radar, which you're actually not supposed to do that unless, you know, you're in a war or we're in a training scenario against each other. Because it, it provides deception. There's a lot of things that happen, but that's probably 
it's as good as anyone's going to get right now. That's the most information anybody's going to get right now from you, you're saying? or Yeah, However, that's more than most people need except the speculators, but it is what it is. Okay, but I'd just like to just define the point. So what you're saying is that that is a, a kind of hostile action when you're talking about active jamming. Yeah, active jamming of a radar is a hostile action. And the Tic Tac actively jammed yeah. the radar. That's correct. That's wow. correct. So you have a great description of where you were going towards the object when it began mirroring you. You were attempting to get a dogfight lock. The AAV tightened its turn, lift vector on, then aft. Go ahead and clarify, if you will. It never went behind us. It never really tightened its turn. It, it, it kept pretty much the same radius of turn around the circle. As we pulled across from the 8 o'clock position towards the 3 o'clock, where he was at 2, moving to 3, so you want to kind of go where he's going because he's moving. You know, if you constantly point at something where it's at, by the time you get there, it'll be gone. You know, it'll move. you got to project yourself in space. So we projected ourselves in space and said, here, he's going to be over here. That's where we pulled to, and as we pulled nose on, it was just slightly off our left side. It rapidly accelerated, and then across our nose, it just disappeared. It, just, it was gone. What was the closest distance you got physically to the vehicle? Half mile. Some people, they would say a half mile is, oh my God, that's far away. And I go, in airplane speak, a half mile is pretty close. There's false information out there that you were something like 20,000 feet closest you ever got to that. That is incorrect information. Oh, yeah, yeah. When it accelerated and disappeared right in front of us, I mean, I was a half mile away and he was right at the same altitude. He was looking at it. You had once told me that the vehicle had appendages. What did it look like? I know no rotors. What did it look like? From what we saw, it looks like a Tic Tac. There's no wings, no rotors, no lifting surfaces, no control surfaces. So just think of a 40-foot-long Tic Tac. When you look at the high-res video, that good luck finding it, but the original video that we had, so literally right off the jet recorders and putting on our monitors, so we're watching it on a like a 21-inch or 20-inch TV, you can see in the TV mode, because the, the Wizzo, the backseat of the other airplane, is going between IR, which is the infrared mode, to an EO, which is electro-optical, which is TV, black and white. Uh, when he goes into the TV mode, he's pretty zoomed in. You can see there's two little things that stick out of the bottom of it. In the IR mode, there's no visible plume. There's no heat. There's, you know, it's, it's just a uniform temperature. If it was a jet engine, there would be, you'd see heat coming out one side. You don't see any of that. And then, you know, when it rapidly accelerates off the side in the video towards the end, goes off the left side, you don't see any of that, any of the indicators of what's propelling it. It just moves. And so you had mentioned to me they were L-shaped appendages underneath the vehicle, the Tic Tac? Yeah, like if you're looking at it, you know, go about, I don't know, 20%, 25% down and kind of come out and make like a little L to the right, like a little down 90 degrees. Just a little, they almost look like little feet just sticking out the bottom. Could be antennas. Were both of the L-shapes going to, to one side or the other, or were there two symmetrical? Yeah. yeah, I believe they both went to the right. So we're looking at it. You know, it goes off to the left side, so they came down and pointed up to the right. They don't go that far down. I mean, you know, the way they're zoomed in, they're they're pretty close to the, the object, you know, the zoom-wise. Was this technology impressive for you in that you usually see heat plumes and that sort of thing through IR? To see no traditional propulsion, was that technologically impressive to you? Oh, very much. I mean, from when we saw it 
above the water with no wash, no rotor wash, no nothing. And then the ability to climb from the surface up towards about roughly 12,000 feet while we're coming down, but then rapidly accelerate, I mean, in an instant to a speed where it disappears. Even Mach 3, you're going to see for a period of time, you know, probably at least 10, 15 seconds before it disappears, you know, out of sight or becomes so small you can't see it. But this thing disappeared in a, in a second. It's just gone. It just disappeared. You said to me it was an impossibly fast speed, just like snapping your fingers, gone. Yeah, it, started, it accelerated across the nose, and the next thing you know, it was gone. It was just gone. Was there an object under the water as far as you know? I don't know what was under the water, but there was something that was causing the waves to break. It could have been 10 feet down. We didn't see anything, which out there you don't in the deep blue. You know, if it's it's called, you know, a dark color, you're probably not going to see it 10 feet, you know, even 10 feet. But when we turned around after the thing disappeared to see what was, you know, was the disturbance still there, the disturbance was gone. You know, so seamounts typically don't disappear. If the whitewater's there, they're charted and there's air. If you look on charts, there's nothing, there's nothing in that area. It's reported that after the Tic Tac took off, the anomalous aero vehicle reappeared at what they said was your cap point. We just went back to see what was in the water. There was nothing there, so we're like, all right, let's just go back to the cat point, because I'm a flight lead, so they kind of do what I say. I said, hey, we're going to head to the cap, and the kid's like, okay, and then he's like, sure, you're not going to believe this. I said, what's that? He says, that thing was at your cap again. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. What are the implications and significance of this to you, that this vehicle ended up being where you were next going? We're like, yeah, we'll see if we can find it again, but... At this point, you know, you're kind of like, what was it? It was impressive. It had incredible capabilities as far as aviation goes. But I didn't, I mean, I didn't have angst. I didn't have anxiety. I wasn't, I wasn't nervous. You know, I wasn't out to, you know, try and do harm to it, even though I had no weapons. I was just more curious of what it was. You see stuff kind of fascinating. It's like if you ever watch a little kid when they see something for the first time, like a bird or a bee, and they just watch it, they just watch it fly, and they're, because they're thinking the same thing. Hey, what is that? I've never seen that before. It was kind of one of those. It really comes down to what actually was it. And the only way we were going to know is either try and catch one, which we weren't going to do in an airplane, but at least get close to it to, to see, you know, what is it? You know, did it have windows? Did it have antennas? Did it have landing gear? You know, what, what, what actually did it possess? What was, you know, what was, to this day, we don't know. Yeah, you were curious. That was my job. When they tell you to go do something, you go do it. For 17 years, that's what I had done. And you've not been asked to sign any non-disclosure agreements? No. The 13-page executive summary of the events that journalist George Knapp recently released, you said to me that this was the most accurate summary of the events. Can you comment on it? It's a pretty accurate depiction of what happened. There are some errors in it, but you're, you know, you're talking about something that was years after the fact. As far as the ability to recall a flight, I'd been doing it for years. I was an instructor twice. You know, we do it all the time to train when we fight. You have to record everything in your mind and then come back and recreate it. I was the most experienced in that type of airplane, thousands of hours behind me because I had been flying Hornets. Uh, the backseat or any other airplane was probably number two. And then the other two were relatively new. Even with that said, I guess it's important to define that 
that executive summary is the most accurate account to date of those events. For the research that went in and tracking down who was who as far as the battle group and who was on the ships and all that stuff, yeah. Have you recently spoken in any official capacity testifying about your experience to members of any intelligence or government agency, and who have you briefed? I won't say who I've talked to. Uh, you know, I'll keep that to myself. Um, but I will say I have talked to people in the government about this since the December article appeared. There is an interest. There are people trying to figure out, is this worth, you know, refunding programs to do this? Uh, not necessarily, you know, it, it could be from a defense posture, but I think it's more of, uh, you know, what are these things? How common are they? Can we advance ourselves from the technologies? Let's stop looking at these things like they're freakish and let's try and learn from them and then possibly reverse engineer or develop technology that gives us that capability, which is a huge leap for really mankind as a whole. I mean, if you think about it, we, we, we advanced technology significantly to go to the moon. And, you know, over years, I don't think people realize all the benefits that we got from the Apollo missions. And so you've recently given briefings on your experience to government individuals. I will say, yes, I have done that. I just won't say who I've talked to. You're quoted as saying the Tic Tac vehicle, you had the impression it was not of this world. What about its maneuverability and propulsion gave you that impression? And do you still feel that way? Oh, I do feel that. I don't think the technology, I don't think we've advanced enough to have the technology for something that can come down from above 80,000 feet, hang out for three or four hours and go straight back up to come from a a hover with no wash, no visible flight control surfaces come up to our altitude. I would think that if there's a technology out there like that, that it would be more proliferated and people would be using it because it's it's too much of an, an advance relative to energy sources and everything else that we just, you know, we're, we're happy to land a SpaceX rocket on the pad, you know, and we're not even 100% successful at that. You've got something that has a capability that's way beyond this. So. What do you hope will happen from you speaking publicly about your experience? Um, I hope people take these serious. I hope people stop, you know, we, I mean, we knew we were going to get ridiculed and it was kind of, it was all in fun, you know, and there was nothing bad about it, but to get people to understand that they're, you know, we can learn from these things instead of thinking that everyone that sees one is crazy. It's going to be difficult to discredit the, the four of us that saw it just based on our position and what we were doing. The people that say things like you saw a bird, you, you have a mistaken identity that was a conventional military drone, it was just radar scatter. What do you say to people or what would you say to people that have that opinion? Well, everyone's going to have their opinion. But then again, I, I'd argue with anyone to come and discredit, you know, what we saw or me or what was going on. And the fact that there's a lot of Internet experts, I call them, you know, and it is what it is. And that's fine. Everyone has that. I don't have time to answer or rebut everyone. But after 18 years of flying, I would argue the fact that if all you got to do is type on the computer and try and refute someone, then I'm not going to sit and argue with you. I'm not going to take the time. But I will tell you, there, there's some extremely brilliant, brilliant people in the world that are extremely interested in this incident and other incidents to try and do something about it instead of trying to debunk poke holes and say it isn't this, it isn't that, it's a spot on the array. I mean, everyone's an expert, you know, but because you've seen a ship or you've seen an airplane or you watch Men in Black does not make you a UFO expert. I mean, I honestly saw one and I don't consider myself an expert. And I think really, if anyone's going to be one, I think it'd be the four of us that actually chased it. Do you still want to fly a Tic Tac? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. And in a second, it'd be fun. 
weaponize your curiosity and go to extraordinarybeliefs.com to learn more.